Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. Uh, We're going to have a good guest later today. Stu is the new head football coach at Oregon, Dan Lanning. Uh, We got a lot to talk to him as he begins his first spring as a head coach, coming off just winning a national title uh, with the Georgia Bulldogs, and he's a team he's going to see very early in his tenure when he faces them with the Ducks. But before we get into that, uh, you had a story that went up on Friday late in the day that was a very interesting look at NIL um, from a contract you reviewed to a big money. For people who I think look at NIL and now they're a little bit numb to it, I think they see a lot of visibility and I'm not sure they know what to make of the dollar figures. And I also think one of the things that has been kind of interesting for a lot of people is what exactly does this mean from a recruiting standpoint? Because we've seen a bunch of these collectives and now we've written a lot of stories at The Athletic between David Ubbins' story on Tennessee, Seth Emerson did one recently on Georgia this week, and now your story kind of on the flip side of it coming from an attorney who's working some of these deals. If people have not seen your story yet, what do you want them to know? Right. So... Like you said, I think people became numb pretty quickly to the concept of, oh, athletes can do endorsement deals now. They show up in ads. Like, that's that's not really um, the story of NIL anymore. The story of NIL is these collectives. And we had David Oven on here a few weeks ago to talk about Tennessee's and how they work um, that have basically just come together and are now having a uh, um, truly, truly direct and powerful influence on recruiting. And in this case... Um, I found out that, and I saw the contract with my own eyes, that one of these schools collectives, uh, made a deal with a five-star recruit. All I can say is he's a five-star recruit in the class of 2023. I had to keep him anonymous and the team anonymous to be able to review the contract. And it starts paying him almost immediately uh, before he even gets to college. By the time he starts his freshman season at his school, uh, he'll be making, uh, over two million a year, and you know the big number that catches everybody's eyes is that if he, um, you know, makes everything that's in the contract, and the contract says there's nothing to stop him from it, uh, he could make more than eight million dollars by the end of his junior season. It's insane. So let me amount, ask, stop yeah. you here on this. And this is a question that you and I have talked offline about this story. But what I'm interested about for people who are looking at this is. There's, you don't have to be cynical to go, well, I thought NIL deals couldn't directly induce recruits. This is a collective that is in business for essentially one football program. 
So there's a disconnect there. Is it just wink, wink, nod, nod? The NCA can't get at this because the language is kind of vague enough for people to get by on this? Yeah, I mean, that's the crazy thing is that I think we all knew when NIL became official that there would be attempts to use it to entice recruits. I didn't know it would be so out in the open and brazen. And so this is a contract. This is this is not, you know, under the table money like in the old days. This is a contract. And in the contract, it says explicitly, this is not an inducement for the athlete to attend any particular university. Also, there is no condition, you know, that he has to. Um, basically, the university that we think he's going to go to now is not mentioned in there anywhere. And in fact, it explicitly says this is not an inducement to play football at any particular school. So I have the same question you do, Bruce. Okay, you're going to promise this guy $8 million and you don't even have anything in writing that says he has to sign with the school. What's to stop him from taking the money and running? And the answer is, uh, first of all, as the lawyer said, there's an element of trust involved. But I think one of the things that I wanted to spotlight in there is that um, he, in, in order to, to get the money, he has to hand over the exclusive rights to his NIL for the, the next three years. So this collective, not only is it raising money, it is then becomes the, the kid's agent, basically, his marketer, and only they can broker NIL deals for him. So if he tried to go to a different school, then they would just stop making NIL deals for him. And, uh, and you know, it's we talked to that lawyer, talked to another lawyer, David Ubbin talked to another lawyer, and what's going on right now that is alarming is that, you know, look, this particular player, his family had this, was savvy enough to go have a lawyer look at the contract, but we think a lot of families are just signing and they don't know what they're signing away. They're signing away exclusive rights to NIL for the, sometimes in some cases, the duration of the career. Uh, I saw a, a draft version of a contract where they would, they said, this is not the same player, but we're going to pay you. $750,000 a year for two years, so $1.5 million. And then buried in the fine print was basically, it didn't say this explicitly, but basically if he's not earning that much, they can go in and ask for it back plus 10%. So our kids, I'm sure, are being taken advantage of and seeing these big dollar figures and signing things that they shouldn't be signing. One, one thing that um, stepped up to me when you when you were discussing this a minute ago was... Okay, we see lots of players go into the portal for all sorts of reasons. Let's say this player gets there in his first year, expectations are going to be sky high. Maybe he, maybe the coordinator and he are not on the same page. Maybe the coordinator goes, maybe the, the system that they run ends up changing for whatever reason. Staffs, you know, come and go, maybe the head, you know, whatever. It's not a good fit. Then what happens? I, nobody knows because we haven't been through this before. I, I think the next couple of years of this could be real messy because promises are going to be made, contracts are going to be signed, and then reality is not going to match you know, what's being said in the contract, and people are going to be trying to find ways out of it. What happens, like we've seen plenty of examples of, you said he's a five-star, we'll, we'll keep it at that. But we've seen plenty of examples of five stars not delivering for all sorts of right. reasons. What happens if he's not, you know, struggles out of the gate and does not win a starting job? Not only that, Bruce, but what if 
think about this, right? Or what if think he just about, gets injured and just can't play? What if he gets injured? I, again, letter of the law, I saw the contract. There is nothing, there's no out. The only outs are if he, there's a confidentiality clause and there's a clause that you would see this in any contract, right? In any profession, you know, about how you conduct yourself. And, you know, if you were to get arrested, if you were to bring embarrassment upon the, the you know, the entity, then they could use that as grounds to get out of it. But what if he's a perfectly model citizen? He's just not as good at football as they thought he would be. Or do they still have to pay him the money? And as far as I can tell, the answer is yes. Now, this is where I think there are so many consequences that are going to come if these collectives continue to be like this. Bruce, I would, I would even say that another consequence of this is that arguably this collective now has more power over playing time than the coach. Because even if Mr. Five Star gets there and just is clearly not ready to be a starter at his position, are they really, does the coaching staff really going to keep the guy who's supposed to be making $2 million a year on the bench? He still gets his money regardless, but I would think that the people who are giving them the, him the $2 million really, really want him to be out on the field and being a star. So um, I think the next few years, because this is still, everything right now is a first. You know, you asked me what happens if, and is nobody knows the answer because ne we've never been through this before. But it just seems to me that the amount of power that these third-party collectives hold now in recruiting, in relationships with the school is bound to backfire like this this the intent is noble at least the written intent right we're going to make sure that our favorite schools athletes have the best possible experience and maximize their nil opportunities that sounds great in theory uh, in reality it's it's introduced uh an element where somebody other than the coach and his assistants has great influence over where the kid is going to go to school let me ask you an inside baseball question that's I'm I'm curious what your thoughts on this are. So obviously this somebody wanted this story out. Like in your like whenever we do a story as a reporter, you think about okay, why is this person becoming a source for me? Like why are they like what do you think the the people behind this wanted? Because it's clearly not to to illuminate what's going on behind the scenes. It is something, is it to drive the market further? Is it kind of a billboard for, hey, this is how we're doing business. If you want to see one of these big deals, if you're a, you know, somebody who is, feels like you're on the same level as this particular player, because a lot of, a lot of people are going to know who this is. It's not that hard for people to connect the dots on this. Well, you know, I can't speak to what agendas people may or may not have had. I can tell you that in my conversations with the lawyer, who did the contract, Mike Caspino, what he seemed most fired up about is that all the bad, you know, unfavorable toward the athlete NIL contracts he's seeing and wanting to get the word out that, you know, families he's not recruits doing those beware. Deals. <laughs> he's yeah, not doing you don't those have deals. to. Well, no, that he's he's pushing back, but because I was thinking about this, it's got it's the most one sided negotiation because let's say the collective wants to have more restrictive language in there and the attorney that's working with the kid pushes back is the collective really going to say no they want the recruit what they don't they can't play hardball so his message is hey families before you sign anything you know make sure a lawyer says this i'm sure he wouldn't mind if it, he's the lawyer that sees it but anyway 
Um, Tell me you're from your You don't have to sign the thing they give you at first. Tell me from your experience now, having worked on this story for a little bit. So we have attorneys. We have collectives that are tied into individual schools. Are attorneys almost like agents in this regard where they can represent people, they can represent different collective interests? Like how... In this particular case, he is... I mean, this, if you look up Mike Caspino, like he represented a, a woman in a Supreme Court case about surrogacy. He's worked with the Roman Catholic Church. Like this, he is not a sports agent by any means. He told me that he basically got exposed to it because his own son is a high school football player right now and is around a lot of recruits. Um, but there are definitely agents there. And I'm not talking just like legit agents, like, you know, the kind of figures like we saw in the Reggie Bush scandal, right? guys who see dollar signs and want to get involved in this and are making relationships with the kids like sure no i'll take care i'll i'll be your representative i'll get you the best possible nia deals and then the next you know the kid has signed away his nil rights to a guy who has no idea what he's doing so it's a wild wild west out there because the ncaa is not regulating it in the slightest they can't they're not they're not even trying to and it's just like like with everything right we see this in every walk of life where there's money to be made there are going to be people looking to cash in who don't have the kids' best interests at heart. So uh, about a year ago at this time, I remember talking to some people inside the college football world, some coaches. And, and one of the examples was put up, and I think this was a story we did on The Athletic, speaking of Reggie Bush, was if, if you're a USC booster and you wanted to say, hey, let's have Reggie Bush come to this booster's uh, kid's birthday party, we can, we, we can give him a $50,000 appearance fee. Realistically, you can give them a hundred thousand dollar appearance fee, and that 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 money will add up fast. In your story, the appearance fees is is basically one of the things that is is written out. Um, mm. Is it not? I was actually surprised. I went in there expecting to see not necessarily dollar figures. What I expected to see was, in return for this, you will be expected to do. 27 autograph signings or 32 birthday parts something specific like that didn't maybe other contracts have that in there it didn't have any support of specific parameters other than you know you will be expected to do appearances social media promotions it's it basically, has a long a, it's list basically of, not spelled out like a little bit it's there's not a, spelled out there's a vagueness to it that basically says here's what matters we're going to pay you this kind of money the way it's structured it's a no-show job yeah, but it there it kind of is. is the no show job, you know, you can, all they because all you have to do this is what I was told pretty early on as we were learning about this because the NCA ended up punting and barely put any rules on it. The only real rules are uh, with NIL are it can't be a recruiting inducement. It can't be pay for play. It can't like be it a can't recruiting be, inducement. But everything you just said is a recruiting inducement. Well, I'm saying on, in theory, it can't be a recruiting inducement. It can't be like, you know, your the amount of money you get is tied to how many touchdowns you score. And it has to, but there has to be, and there has to be some sort of quid pro quo. It can't just be like, here's a check. There has to be some conditions that are met, some some legitimate NIL activity you have to do. But that's, I just explained to you how you get around the first two. And the third one, I mean, they're basically saying if the kid shows up and does like some meet and greets, what, how much, like I remember when the NCAA was going through this for years, they always intended for there to be some sort of uh, regulation over market value. They wanted to make sure that people were being paid market value. And in the end of the day, it's just like the market value is whatever somebody will pay you. So I don't know. Let's say the kid ends up for his two, for his more than two million a year does 
ends up doing just like 20 NIL things in that year. That's $200,000 per appearance, which we all know is outrageous, but who's to say that's not what it costs, right? There's no, there's no governing body to say like, no, 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 that kind of autograph signing only pays 5,000. So, um, but basically the way it's structured, and I guess I should have explained this off the top, these money figures I'm talking about, like he's going to get within 10 days of signing the contract, 350 grand, um, are advances. Just like when you write a book, Bruce, right? You get paid a very uh, nice, like eight, nine million dollar advance. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, that's not true. Go ahead. But you get paid in advance, right? Yes. For the for for a hypothetical, let's just say you get paid a hundred thousand dollar advance. Then the book starts getting sold. You're not going to see another dime above that until you've, you've earned, earned back out, yeah. the hundred thousand. And that's what this is. This kid is getting an advance against future nil earnings. But the crazy thing is, like, who decides that whether he's actually made that back yet? So the collective does. So one thing that happens when a story comes out like this is people comment, they weigh in. This is the worst. This is the craziest thing. This is the worst thing ever. Oh, this is. Let me ask you, how do you feel about it? I don't feel good about it, but I why also don't you, feel, why do you not feel good about it? The main thing I don't feel good about is that is what I just said earlier. I don't think these third parties who may or may not be even qualified to be doing this now have so much influence in the sport of college football and in recruiting. I don't have a problem with the kids making the money. If somebody thinks this player is worth more than $2 million a year, good for him. You know, you, you, we talked about that with David Oven. Like, we don't think there should be somebody coming in and like suppressing these kids' ability to make money. But as you said, how it works the logistics of how that works is where it gets really dicey and this is not a this is not a um sustainable system that what we're seeing sprout up here like if if, if he's going to get this much how much is the next five star going to get and how quickly does that keep growing and how quickly and andy staples has pointed this out how i mean it, it will probably correct itself when these collectives realize they're not making anywhere near that much money back One so thing- if this, they they're paying this kid eight million dollars and if he gets there and he only gets a million dollars worth of nil value they've just cost themselves seven million dollars are they really going to make another deal like that well i think the question is going to be can this player become cam newton for their program can he become saquon barkley to me it's what whatever their nil value i think i wouldn't hold on to that because it's almost like trying to quantify and i don't want to overstate this is what i'm about to do is like mac brown for the university of texas raised a fortune for the Texas community, uh, University of Texas community and everything and, and surrounding businesses. Frank Beamer taking Virginia Tech to another level. Obviously, Michael Vick had a had a sizable role in that too. Hotels get built. A lot of different things go up. If this player turns out to be a transformational, generational talent, then yes. And I think they're, they're, they're betting on this. But I, you know, I come back. It's a to- risky bet. It is. It's a risky bet. I think it's 50-50 whether he actually ends up being a star or not. Because, well, yeah, I I, I think just based I'm on... I'm not talking pers- about that specific player. I, mean, I know, like, you're just based on a five-star. Yeah, I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, about half 50. of them, some of them will go on to be NFL All-Pros, and some of them will never step foot on the field. You know, More than likely, just, they will not be NFL All-Pros. Like, yeah. they may be good players, but in terms of generational talents, I mean, look, if you look at the guys who would fit into turning around a program, you know, 
I mean, it's it, there. There are fewer than than there are. I think uh, one one thing that I'm trying to see where I go with this, and I don't know if I have time to get into it. Um, yeah, I don't think I have time to get into this. Well, I'll just say this: um, when people and I saw it in the comments on Twitter, this is the death of college football. You know, a lot of like. Thanks, sports writers. You finally got what you wanted. Now the, the whole sport's going to go to shit. Um, first of all, I agree with David Oven on our podcast who said people just love their teams and the college football Saturdays so much that this is one of those things we we get worked up in March when there's nothing else going on. But once they kick off that Ohio State-Notre Dame game on September 4th, I believe, 3rd, like you're not going to be thinking about NIL when you're watching that game. Also... Yeah, Andy made it. I thought a really good point on social media. Andy Staples did where he, you know, and Andy loves to spar with people back and forth. And at one point, he said, "I forgot what somebody was like." Yeah, I'm done. I'm done with this sport or something like that. And Andy said, "Wait a minute. If you go to a restaurant and you find out like the chef is all or the person who serves your meal is making a ton of money, do you not like the food as much? <laughs> you know, like." And I'm paraphrasing. I don't what he think, said. but I don't think that's the negative thing. People are. I could be wrong. I'm sure some people think. Yeah, no. There's a no quaint notion of it. Different. There's a quaint notion of the. It's the it's the aspect that it's an uneven playing field. That, it's that always the, been an uneven uneven exactly. playing field. The notion that 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 a school that has a donor who's particularly overzealous goes and gets this kid to come to their school that's not fair. That's but, but again, that's I always been think, the way it's been. It's just now. Yeah, but some people don't necessarily understand that or agree with that, and because I mean, they think I the, will they say think like, only their school is not cheating. Correct. That's always been. That was in my book 20, 15 years ago. Everybody cheats, but but except us. Um, the other thing is, and I'll say this till the end of time: no matter what negative consequences might come from NIL being legalized, it was still the right thing to legalize. It was the ethically, morally, like we're talking about. Six million, seven million. As of July, June thirtieth, the last year, it was still zero dollars that any athlete could make from use of their name, image, and likeness. And so, you know, this story, this this eight million dollars is getting the attention. But like, there are all these athletes who you've never even heard of who are playing in the non-revenue sports who are now making, who are now able to, you know, make a little spending money, uh, buy some nicer clothes because they have a decent following on Instagram and they can actually monetize it or the lacrosse player in her, who's a hero in her hometown who can go hold a clinic with her name on it, which she couldn't do before and, and make a little money that way. That was the reason NIL needed to be legalized. What's going on with football recruiting is a mess and they'll need to figure that out, but that don't penalize every other athlete in America, college athlete in America and keep them from, from, you know, realizing their value because the NCAA can't figure out how to regulate this. If you want to read that story, go to theathletic.com slash theaudible to get our special offer. It's only $1 a month for the next six months on new subscriptions. What do you say we get to our guest? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, Stu, we are pleased to be joined by our guest. It is the new head coach of the Oregon Ducks, Dan Lanning. Dan, thanks for joining us today on The Audible. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. So a lot of people know you. Obviously, you helped Georgia win a national title with an awesome defense. I mean, a ridiculous amount of talent you were coordinating there. Um, but for people who might not know, you have been in the Pac-12 before. You spent a couple of years at Arizona State. I guess it's now almost a decade ago. I would ask you this, um, especially when you were in the conference. I mean, Oregon at that point was they were an offensive juggernaut and, and just, uh, you know, whipping people. Um, the program, Mario Cristobal, who you worked with, uh, I guess at Alabama, he just really kind of got it going and just, you know, recruited really well. They're physical and everything else. What do you want to do? What do you feel like you need to do to elevate the Ducks to take maybe that next step to be in a team that could be where Georgia just was and is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's small steps. It's day by day. Um, big piece for us is obviously we want to take care of business in this conference and become a dominant force on the West Coast. And you do that by building off, you know, what's been established here. But, you know, also going forward, you got to go compete in those big games outside of here. And, you know, um, you know, Mario and his crew, they, they won against Ohio State last year and then stubbed their toe a little bit in some of the Pac-12 games. We want to go be able to complete those games, um, you know, and finish that off. But, continue to develop on the talent, grow in the trenches. You know, we have a strong offensive line. Coach did a good job of recruiting that and build off of that talent up front. I think that can really take us to another level when you're able to build that on defense as well. And Dan, you're known for, obviously, I mean, last year's Georgia defense was unbelievably talented and, and physical. And, and yeah, but I'm also, as you're on this Zoom, there's a Sports Illustrated cover of Marcus Mariota right next to you. Um, Oregon football for a lot of people is still synonymous with the high tempo offense and great quarterbacks. How do you go about melding the two? I mean, your background is in, in, you guys showed last year, you know, a year after Nick Saban said you can't win with defense anymore. You guys showed you can't absolutely can, but people think of Oregon football. They think of, of that guy right there. And, uh, and certainly Justin Herbert and a lot of other guys like that. Absolutely. I mean, I'll say this as a defensive coordinator the last um, three years, there's nothing more than a defensive coordinator likes than a great offense. Right. So we want to go score points. You know, we want to be dynamic on that side of the ball. And uh, I think when you think of Oregon, 100 percent, you think of Marcus, you think of what they've done offensively here in the past. But there's also some great defensive history. But we want to build on that offense. I don't think uh, people should understand we're not coming here to you know, win a game three to zero. That's not our goal. We want to score some points. We want to push the tempo. We want to make, you know, defenses uncomfortable. And when I think of Oregon outside of just offense, I think about innovative. And we want to be innovative in our approach on the offensive and defensive side of the ball and the way we attack. So now that you're in, you've had a couple of spring practices to see what you got. I am, I don't know if I, as uh, being at the combine, there was an insane amount of Georgia guys on defense that you had. Where would where would Noah Sewell have played on that defense? And like you'd still have some guys that probably you would have had to find a way into too deep. But is it a question of okay, we're gonna 
we're going to build off of a blueprint there? Or what is the things where you look at? Because obviously you have, as you said, a, a pretty good offensive line. But now in terms of quarterback, you got a transfer Bo Nix who you know a bunch about. you got some other guys who have, you know, were highly recruited when they came in. Um, how quickly do you feel like you can put your really stamp on this? Or is it just kind of the next whatever 13 practices, hey, let's figure out what we actually got as opposed to maybe what we thought we had in these guys when maybe we looked at them as recruits. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of time, you know, to figure that out. We've had two practices, but not a single practice yet in Pats, you know, so a lot of that comes out. Football is really a game to be meant, you know, to be played with shoulder pads and a helmet, you know, and once we really see over the next 13 practices what we have, I think that's when you start to curtail what you do. Um, you start with the base. You know, you have a foundation of here's what we're going to be built around. But the tweaks, uh, the changes here and there, a lot of that starts with figuring out where your strengths are and what your depth looks like. You know, I was a high school coach for three years before I ever became a college football coach. And every year you would change a lot based on your personnel. And even at Georgia, you know, we were really a strong dominant team uh, defensively. We had a strong back end, you know, two years ago uh, and probably played to those strengths a little bit. And then this past year, we were really strong in the front seven and really played to those strengths. So we're going to adapt to our personnel, whether it be, you know, the front, whether it be quarterback. I'm, I'm really excited about the competition we have there between Butterfield, Ty Thompson, Knicks in that room, uh, but still too early to say what we have. I think we have to keep evaluating that. Um, it used to be when a new coach took over, the only way he could really build up the roster was through recruiting. Now we have the transfer portal and we've seen, I mean, there's a lot of, coaches taking over at high profile programs this year and some of them went hard on the portal and some of them not so much i mean you mentioned bo nix but in general like when you came in how did you decide between we're gonna load up on transfers for right now or we want to save those more for high school players you know i i think we have to keep evaluating this two to three years from now i think people really know the model um, and what it looks like we want to use the, the portal to enhance our program but that's not the only place that we want to live. Uh, I still believe in developing talent from the ground up and bringing guys in as high school players to build your culture. That being said, we, we brought some guys in that we're really excited about, that we really had intimate knowledge about, you know, and I think some programs will make mistakes by going and reaching for guys that they don't know a lot about and bringing them in and, and hoping it's a fit. But you really don't know if they're going to be a fit until you have a, a great understanding of your current team, your current roster, and the people you're bringing in. So, for us, it's about meeting the guys on our team here, really getting to know who we have in this room, connecting with those guys, because that's going to be the group that wins and loses us football games. And then we want to be able to add those pieces to the puzzle, you know, through the portal. It can make us a little bit better here and there. Dan, like you have some very recognizable names that you brought in. A couple guys come back from the NFL, Tosh. Lupoy, who you, I think you worked with at Alabama, and he has a ton of experience recruiting on the West Coast. Your O-line guy, Adrian Clem, former UCLA assistant, been with the Steelers the past couple of years, obviously a ton of, ton of experience recruiting on the West Coast. Uh, your offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham, I don't think you guys over, I thought you did, but I, I guess you didn't overlap at ASU, but he's an Arizona guy. So um, when you assembled this staff, I'm curious, like at what point in your, you know, as a coach who was on people's radar for a while, like when did you look at Kenny? Was it, you know, going back to the Memphis days or was it way before where you go like, hey, if I ever become a head coach, he's going to be that guy. Like, how are you as a, managing Georgia's defense, but also this is going to be my blueprint of the guys 
and what I'm looking for. Yeah, one thing I've found, at least progressing in my career, is if you say, okay, I'm going to do this when I get the opportunity, you'll never truly be prepared. So, you know, one thing I learned from Coach Smart and Coach Saban both is take detailed notes as you go and adapt as you go. But whenever I came across an elite coach or somebody I thought was a game changer, you know, I made a mental note. And going all the way back to my time as a GA at Arizona State, I had a list in my iPhone of potential coaching candidates I would hire you know, by position, what they look like. And, you know, fortunately, a lot of these guys on staff I've worked with, you know, whether it be Kenny Dillingham at Memphis or Joe Lorg at Arizona State and Memphis, Tosh at um, Alabama, you know, Matt Pallage at Sam Houston State. There's a lot of these guys that we've overlapped, maybe at different places, but I knew in the back of my mind, if I get the opportunity, I want to hire them. And then there's guys like Adrian Clem, who I didn't work with, but I went against. And I saw his offensive lines. I saw how we recruited this level. And uh, was really fortunate that I didn't have to go far down my list here at Oregon when I got here because of the support from the administration and the excitement around our program. You know, we were able to attract good coaches because they see what this place is and they understand, you know, who I am and what I want to piece together. So that was a fun process, but it wasn't like, hey, you got the job. All right, let's scramble and figure out who we're signing, or who we're bringing on board. Kenny and I talk ball every offseason. Tosh and I do, you know, did professional development for years and um, getting to coach with them obviously strengthened that relationship. So it was important to bring people in that I trust, that I thought were great, you know, great with relationships. In today's day and age, you have to have guys that are great relationship guys and then great teachers. You know, I think those are the things that can change the game for us. Dan, your program played in, in national championship games in, in 2010 and 2014. Obviously, the sport has changed a lot since then, and we've seen the SEC and just the Southeast Clemson really dominate this sport. Um, and at the same time, the Pac-12 hasn't had a team in the playoffs since 2016. What makes you confident that in this climate, a team from the West Coast can still be among those elite teams nationally? You know, pro Probably it starts for me, knowing with what we just did it with at Georgia, that there's a lot of West Coast talent on those teams, You know, our team at, at Georgia. And if we're able to keep that talent home, that's one place where it can start, right? Uh, being able to, to play with those guys here at this place. Uh, and build that brand. Now, I also know uh, that we're close and college football is about to become the haves and the have nots. And we're unique in a situation here where we have great support, great backing from a fan base, but also from people that have interest in our program being successful. And when you're able to have that support in the day and age of name image likeness, in the day and age of the transfer portal, I think it gives you a chance. And people are excited about it. You know, this conference has uh, been, you know, reinvigorated right now. Uh, and it's exciting to see what it's going to turn out to next year when we get a chance to compete against some of those other teams. Dan, if I told you, for people who maybe don't know your background, you were William Jewell College linebacker in the Midwest not that long ago. Obviously, you're 35. If I told you when you were a senior, not too far down the road, you were going to have been on Nick Saban's staff, won a national title as a D.C. for Kirby Smart, and then got not just a FBS head coaching job, but when you were in college, Oregon was rolling at that point too. What would you, what would what would twenty uh, one year old Dan Lanning have thought that you would have been able to do all those things? You know, uh, I don't know if I ever dreamed having a um, of having a career that's been as rewarding as my career's been. And I know how fortunate I am to be exactly where I'm at right now. You know, I'm, I'm truly blessed. I've been fortunate to know and be around great coaches. And that's been a benefit for me. But I also feel like I created some of that luck and that fortune myself by places I've been and how hard I worked when I got there. Um, 
one thing for me is every day I see every single day I competed to be the best wherever I was at. And the, the big goal is that led to opportunities down the road when you did that. And I think that's, you know, it's all coming to fruition, you know, firsthand. And those experiences are super rewarding. But could I have ever dreamed of it at 21? No. You know, at that point, I, I certainly thought I could have been a high school coach my entire career and would have been very happy doing that. But it's been a blessing, a uh, super special place uh, that I, I see, you know, exceptional things happening for us down the road. Uh, and just enjoying the journey has been a lot of, of fun for me. One quick follow-up on that. I'm, I'm curious, having been at Sam Houston State to go see Longo when he was there, and I met some of your colleagues. I remember going to, I forgot where we went for Tex-Mex for lunch, but like definitely, you know, a real successful program, but kind of off the beaten path. Yeah. You go from there to Tuscaloosa. Like walk us through when you realize, man, I just got up. Not to say that Arizona State wasn't, but that is the big break. So what how did that come about and how were you able to like, all right, I'm here now. Like, like walk us through that kind of transition. You know, I think early in my career, one thing that I really focused on was opportunity, not, not the dollar sign. And a lot of people probably don't realize this, but early on, I didn't, I didn't make a lot of money in this profession. In fact, I, you know, it was more like donating money to be in the profession. And uh, at Sam Houston State, that was kind of my first break. I was a full-time coach. I was coaching the DBs. We were, you know, a very successful team. Got to play North Dakota State in the semifinals. And after that season, I got an opportunity to go interview for a graduate assistant position at Alabama. Um, but it wasn't a job that was going to pay a lot of money. But that was another example for me where a lot of people might have said, hey, this doesn't make sense financially with a wife and three kids. For me, it was the opportunity. And being a GA, whether you're making – thousand bucks a month or not, that opportunity was one I couldn't pass up. And I always said to going there, you know, I'm going to go get my doctorate in football. And every day I walked into that building and I just felt like I had a lot to learn. And I learned a ton in that year in football, whether it be from one of the many head coaches that were on that staff, Coach Cristobal, you know, Coach you know, Mel Tucker, Lane Kiffin, Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, Billy Napier. It's just a group of all-star coaches that I was able to really – be around every single day and see how they operate. Um, and you, you can't replace that experience with any dollar sign. And that was, you know, for me, being able to compete at that level, being that, being that environment day in and day out, I just grew so much as a coach um, that, you know, that that's when I realized that you can't put limits on yourself. If you're willing to work hard and you're in a place where you can learn, you know, limit. Well, Dan, um, I know you're only two practices in, so the season opener seems a long ways away, and I'm sure you're going to get asked this a lot in the next few months, but I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this. Your first game as a head coach is going to be against the school that you just won a national championship with. Like You were celebrating with Kirby Smart and Stetson Bennett and all those guys. You're going to face them in early September. What do you think that'll be like? I'm super rewarding. I'm, I'm really proud of everything that we accomplished at Georgia. And I've got a tremendous amount of respect for Coach Smart, that staff. I still have a lot of love for every one of those players in that program. Uh, so it certainly means a lot to me. But I also like to play to win. And we're, we're excited to go out there and compete, uh, put the best product that we can on the field and see where the thing goes. Hey, Dan, I want to ask you one question because Stu and I have talked about this a bunch over the last couple of days, and it's it's you're becoming a head coach at the time when NIL is exploding. Um, one of the points Stu had made, because we were talking about this offline a little bit, is, you know, does the power shift where collectives now maybe have more influence over, over rosters than ever before? How is it head coach? How do you 
prepare to manage kind of that dynamic as it's, you know, it's, these are, these are uncharted waters really. Yeah. It's super fluid. And I think it's important, um, you know, at least for me that you don't take hard stances one direction or the other, and you have to be able to adapt on the fly. You know, two years ago, no one was really, you know, playing for the portal and that game's obviously completely changed. People realize you can change your roster quickly uh, with a couple additions here or there, or uh, you can, your, your situation can change when a couple guys leave here or there. And I think name image likeness is very similar. What you don't want to do is be in a place where you're, you're not competitive and you're not innovative. And that's the one thing that I'm excited about with Oregon is, you know, coming here, they have a distinct plan. They know how to attack. Um, this place was built on innovative and we're, we're kind of operating that, that same approach when it comes to the name image likeness programs. Um, but there's definitely never been more influence and, never been anything as important as that piece going forward. I mean, I think of people, a lot of people to assume that Oregon, we've long known about the Nike connection and Kayvon Thibodeau was doing things with NFTs before I knew what an NFT was <laughs> last year. Like that you, <laughs> that you guys would of, 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 the, of all programs would be in, in a pretty good place to be in this NIL climate. Yeah, we're, we're sitting in a great situation. Um, but I think the thing that's awesome about this place is no one's comfortable, right? It would be really easy to say, okay, yeah, we've got all this support. We've got the, the Nike. We've, we're already ahead of the curve and say, okay, we're going to stay there. But the reality is we're going to continue to push the envelope. We're going to continue to figure out ways to be better and, um, you know, keep broadening our horizons as we move forward. All right, Dan, we appreciate your time, especially in the middle of spring ball. We're hopefully get up and see you. Um, as you said, this place was built on innovation and and that's a pretty cool thing to be uh, to have as as really like your your mission statement on a lot of ways. So best of luck there. Appreciate you guys. Thanks, Thanks so, so much. much. All right. Thanks, Dan. We'll see you All soon. All right. Have a good Take one. Take care. All right, Stu, let's get to the mailbag. As always, send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, the first question is from Walt. Hey, Stu and Bruce, after the ACC Big Ten and Pac-12 voted against an early 12-team playoff, is it realistic to think the SEC would design their own playoff? And what would it look like, Stu? Um, let's tie this into our colleague Andy Staples. Uh, yeah. Spoke to Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. Had an interesting story over the weekend, or maybe it was Friday. Yeah, I think he was at the basketball tournament, and you know, there was there. I know that maybe it was even Andy that wrote it. There was some talk when the thing initially broke down that the SEC would just go and form its own playoff, and and then you know, if you guys want to, the rest of the country want to pull together and have somebody play our champion, so be it. That's not going to happen. But I think Greg Sankey is going to, I think he feels like he he worked to, he made compromises that necessarily, they wouldn't necessarily have liked to be able to get that thing through and it didn't happen. So now they're going to dictate the terms. And one of the, I think an interesting point that he makes in the interview with Andy is, you know, um, now I'll read you the exact quote. We have to rethink our positioning, he said. I don't know what the number will be. I still think there's a reason that 12 works. But the notion of just granting conference champions the top four seeds, we're going to rethink that. That was a give as people wanted conference champions. But now people want something else. So if in the 12-team model that, that Greg Sankey himself was one of the authors on, the top four seeds were conference champions. In fact, it was noted that last year, Georgia would have been the number five seed because they wouldn't have been able to get any higher because they didn't win their conference championship. Greg Sankey said, hinting there that, you know, well, 
we tried to play nice. Now we want a system where if SEC teams rank, are ranked one, three, and four, then they get the one, three, and four seeds. And that uh, others will, if that were to come to that, others would obviously object. But at the end of the day, who has the most leverage in these playoff discussions? It's a strong point, and I think that if you're Greg Sankey or anybody looking at it, say, yeah, could you blame him? I mean, the examples you, you just used, everything bears out. Right now, these other conferences, especially the Pac-12, uh, you know, it's, they don't have a strong footing to, 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 to play on. And some of this, some of the rationale, I mean, some of it's been explained, some of it is not. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's been kind of a head-scratcher, to be honest. I think you're going to see, um, you know, everybody talks about the alliance, but if you notice, there was kind of starting to be unofficially a counter-alliance. Bob Bowlesby has clearly decided that, you know, whatever happened with expansion is over, and he's completely aligned with Sankey on the playoff stuff. Jack Swarbrick is completely aligned with Sankey on the playoff stuff. And the group of five, I don't know if they would be aligned with him on this conference championship component, because obviously they... They would uh, want to protect their conference champion, but um, so it's Kevin Warren and and from the Big Ten and George Klyovkov, who's even newer than Kevin Warren from the Pac-12. Reading the tea leaves, tell me what you see for the next playoff. No, well, as they approach the next round of discussions that are now further, the can's been kicked down the road. I think that everybody's going to make sure that they're champion. Like if the thing that if Sankey proposed it, I, I, nobody would. Yeah, I'm, maybe I'm. I think what's what's going to be interesting here is you have the Big Ten has its TV rights, which will get sorted out sooner than later. It's going to be a lot of money we're talking about. Um, I don't know. Like, how do you do? You think that situation will influence where the Big Ten goes down the road. Oh, I see what you mean. You know, I think at the end of the day, the discussions that led to the from the BCS to the four-team playoff, every conference was part of those discussions. It basically came down to the Big Ten versus the SEC. What the Big Ten wanted versus what the SEC wanted, and they reached a compromise. And those two are so far above everybody else in terms of influence and money that by the time we get to 2026, it'll be even more so. So the question is, will the Big Ten, how much does the Big Ten plan to stick to this alliance? Because, you know... Are they sticking to the alliance, college, actually, though? We started to see the first cracks, I right? don't think With they're Dean sticking Smith to the alliance. Saying, we, don't, we don't really see the need to do the scheduling thing after all. They don't have the same rationale for their decisions. I don't the see The Big them. Ten on its own, like, basically, if you were forming a college football playoff from scratch and the ACC pulled what they just did, you'd be like, well, okay, we'll, we'll move on without you. You know, like the country's not going to have a, a, a meltdown if the ACC is not part of the playoff. Same thing with the Pac-12. Same thing probably with the new Big 12. But you got to have the Big 10. you got to have the SEC. And so I think it'll the next round of discussions will basically be about what each of those wants and who gets more of what. Okay. Don't you? Uh, yeah, I think it's like, who is, you know, again, I, I feel like the alliance was drastically overstated and overhyped, um, as it relates to what seems to really matter in college football. 
and I don't know who is going like what is going to be the influence that that is going to be deciding the top of the conferences you know three years from now or whatever it is once we get through this this big I would say money grab but that's basically what it's going to be you're also gonna I mean you mentioned the big 10 TV deal but you're also going to have a new Pac-12 deal, which is they, you know, they've been waiting for this day for however long, and you're going to have a the Big Twelve, the first TV deal of the new Big Twelve without Texas and Oklahoma, and we're going to come out of that period and be like, okay, so this is what the landscape looks like now, and I think I'm not really optimistic for the Pac-12 and the Big Twelve, uh, how much money they're going to make in that, and so when they go to the that the the kind of crazy thing about those conferences blocking it this time around is I think they'll have less leverage next time around than they did this time around. I, it would have been in their best interest to go ahead and get it done, but we're not going to go back through that again. I agree. Next up. Um, from David, gentlemen, thanks for the excellent discussion debate regarding your top 25 coach lists. I'll even forgive Bruce's heroic, though ultimately unpersuasive defense of Chip Kelly at 16. It should be noted that I believe David is a USC fan. You guys have somewhat different criteria for lists, so I wondered if you might play the following game. If money were no object, you were the AD of a big-time program, and ignoring geography, who would be the first five coaches in order that you would approach? And I'm curious whether those would be the same as the top five on your current list. I'm just reading this now. And then he says if you were the AD of a program with a more modest, but you know what? Let's do the second part, because I think the first part we'd all say Chip Kelly, Dabo Smitty. You're the AD of a program with a more mar- modest budget. Who would be the first five you would approach? Uh, modest budget. Um, I would. The first name that comes to mind on that would be. Um, there's guys that maybe didn't make our list. I, I guess I got to figure out what exactly do we talk about as a modest budget here. Well, let's just pick a school. Matt Campbell leaves Iowa State. They've got to hire a replacement. They know they're not going to get. Dabo Swinney, they're not going to get Ryan Day, they're not going to get these guys who are expecting six, seven, eight million dollars. But they can get somebody who four million dollars a year would be plenty. Who are they calling? Okay, I don't know if you can get Dave Clawson for that money. I think you can get Jamie Chadwell for that money. I would go after Jamie Chadwell. I know he was a justmith's to cut. On, I think on both our lists, he would be a guy. Four million dollars is not. I mean, it's a lot of money, but relative to all these guys on our top twenty-five, it's not. Um, I would. Yeah, I mean, that's that's that was Campbell's salary as of twenty twenty-one. Yeah, me. like I think, you know, just use the example Iowa State. I don't think they can get him because he's making more than this. But Dana Holgerson's actually from Iowa, went to college in Iowa. I think he's a really, really brilliant offensive mind. But you're not going to. I mean, he's you're not going to get him to leave Houston for that kind of money. Um, that's why I would stick. You don't with, think he would leave? Well, I guess they're going to be in the no, same conference. No, he so wouldn't. He's, no, in, he's in a big market. He has a lot of connections in Houston. He's got a way bigger recruiting base right now. So, what about Hugh Freeze? Hugh Freeze to Ames, huh? Um, I think I believe that would be a raise. Although Liberty does throw money around quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't. I, I just. I think you gave me a example, like almost like modest money. Now. Never mind. Hugh Freeze makes four million dollars yeah. annually. Um, if you said five and a half million, which is like crazy to think <laughs> that that's like, you know, the guys that it could get, Jeff Munkin, 
Um, mm -hmm. It could certainly, I would think, get Bill Clark, probably Lance Leipold, but that's probably the extent of it on guys on our list. Right? Well, I think, I mean, I thought Kansas should have hired Jeff Munkin, though I do think no, they did, I think they did well. Lance yeah. Okay. yeah, I think either guy was, was, so I think, you know, obviously I'd be pushing for Munkin, I'd be pushing for uh, uh, Chadwell, like you said, Bill Clark uh, would be a really good one. I'm trying to think of like a Maybe lower down power five we're not thinking of. A lower down power five. Uh, he's making more than this, but Jeff Brom. Yeah, I think he's a he's. What about okay? I I have a good one. Yeah, I don't know what he makes now. Let's just try to get money out of the equation. You're just you're signing. This this tier of coaches, and you're trying to hire them. And you're and he said like we're in some random geographic location. What, what about? I'm thinking maybe somebody like Jonathan Smith. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I mean, he's done a nice job there. I mean, he's got a lot of ties, obviously, up in Corvallis and on the West Coast. I don't know, you know, how that one plays if it if you take him to Iowa State. You know, I feel like he's a better fit where he's at. But he's a better fit where he's at. But is he like enough of a tactician? And by the way, he only makes 2.4 um, that, you know, you think he'd have success wherever he goes. What is success? You know, like right now. I Well, I, I think Iowa State success is to try to, like, keep doing what Matt Campbell's been doing and maybe occasionally rise up and win the conference. Yeah, it's not not bad. Like, there are certain guys, like, you're going to probably bet on the come. You know, again, it's like I go back to Jamie Chadwell on that. I think it's. It's can you do what he's doing there um, at a at a group of five program and build off it? After that, I I think it's kind of it's a gamble, you know, to see how it fits regionally. You know, um, let's go back to the beginning of his question. If you were to say five five guys on the top end, ignoring geography. Um, and let's take Saban out of it, you know. Um, you know who I would have high on my list on this? And maybe I'm, you know, my first name, I think, would be Lincoln Riley. He's never won a national title. He hasn't actually, you know, he's been in the playoff. But you know what you're getting offensively. You know you can sell him as a recruit. I know from talking to guys who have been recruited by him that they know he will work at it. Um and I think you could sell him all over the country. He's not a regional fit. I think he would be really high on my list of that if you said top five. And with that, we lost every last Oklahoma listener. No. <laughs> I don't disagree. I, I don't know if he'd be my first one, but he would be. Who would be your first be one? one of the five? I can't see so you saying Saban's off the, off so, the yeah, table, let's, right? let's, no, let's. But is Kirby Smart on the table? Kirby Smart is on the table. Yeah, I would call him. Brian Kelly's on the table. Um, Dabo's on the Kelly, table. I'd call Ryan Day. I called Dabo. All of them before Lincoln Riley. Um, I might. I call Lincoln Riley before Dabo because I'm a little bit feeling a little bit. I mean, he deserves to be number two on the list for what he's done. I'm feeling a little bit of uh, concern about what's to come from here for Dabo because I feel like he just lost to you know extremely important coordinators and also just he's a stubborn guy and the sport is changing so quickly and is he going to be able to 
adapt to the transfer portal NIL era? My two top two guys, neither one has won a national title or played for it technically or been in the title game. Um, actually, that's not true. Uh, my other two guys almost won it, actually. Ryan Day. Um, and I, again, Ryan Day, a little like Lincoln Riley, where they both have very hands-on offensive guys. Um, I'm going to throw out something on Ryan Day that I do value. Um, and I'm not saying other guys aren't like this, but Ryan Day has been, and I think he deserves a ton of credit for this, especially, you know, it's like a story that was in the, in the college football news a little bit recently where a former five-star offensive lineman, Harry Miller, had been very um, public about his battle with mental health issues. And Ryan Day, who has been, who has used his platform to be very, uh, vocal and supportive of, of the cause of the issues of mental health in ways, and I'm not saying other coaches don't talk about it, but he and his wife have been very proactive in it, and it is it is impacting people in a really positive way. And I would want if I was an AD, I would. He's a he's obviously a terrific coach, but I also think he is championing something very important right now, and I would want that. And that might be a reason. I wouldn't necessarily say that would be a distinction for me on our top 25 list to push Ryan Day above somebody else. But I think if I was an AD and I wanted somebody representing my school, I would, I really am awed by what he's doing because I think it's really important. It's important to him because of what his family's experienced and what he has experienced. But I think that's something that you know, it is college football, and I think you're dealing with college athletes, and I I think that that would matter to me. I agree with everything you just said. I noticed you did not bring that up on the podcast we did with Ralph Russo, where he was telling us why he had Ryan Day so much lower than us. Like you saved that for this one. I I didn't think um, of it like no, but the context <laughs> of of David's question is yeah, you know, who would you? Well, so like who, like as a person, would you, would you you approach? I, um, you know, I, I was very, you know, like the, the comments from that player were so heartfelt, um, and so, um, uh, powerful. It was was so jaw dropping. I mean, that he went public and said, and I believe it was the one of the very first sentences that. At, I think he said before last season or around the start of last season, I went to Ryan Day and told him that I planned to kill myself. And, you know, I don't, we know from his hist, from Ryan Day's own personal history, how, you know, um, we, they, if there's any coach that would have been able prepared to handle that situation, it's him. And he, and he, you know, has now given, he's retired from football, but he's given him a role still in the program and, you know, you can tell the player is just incredibly grateful to him. Yeah, and I saw there was a, another player at Temple who echoed Harry Miller's um, sentiment, and I just think it has it's very impactful, not just with with uh, eighteen to twenty two year olds, but I think to be able to have that platform, use it that way to impact people, where it's like because this guy in Harry Miller's case, because this other player has done it, like. I just think that is a, that is, you know, for all the stuff that people can go, yeah, this, this, I, 
you know, we were talking before about NIL and how some fans, you know, just roll their eyes at it and where the game is headed and everything else. And there's a, there's plenty of stuff to be cynical about on social media. Um, but for me, for that, and I don't think like Ryan, like Ryan Day to me is, you know, he's not like super out there in terms of outspoken. You're not going to see him everywhere or whatever. But I think that is an important cause to him and his family. And I think it's an important, such an important one. And we see how important it is more, you know, time and time again, especially now. So, um, if like he would be my top guy just because what he does on the field, but what he's also been about. And I, you know, I'll, I'll stand by that one. Okay. Um, here's another coach ranking related question from Mike Dodonna. Why do you guys keep using winning national championships as a main reason why a coach should be considered good? There are many good coaches who have never won one and many coaches who have won one by sheer circumstance. And he lists Gene Chizik, Larry Coker, Les Miles. I disagree with that one. Bobby Ross and Danny Ford. I don't think at any point these guys would have been considered a top 25 coach. Okay. Maybe Les Miles. Um, I think that I get where he's coming from in that maybe unlike some, unlike pro sports where there's a reason why winning the championship is the end all be all barometer because the college football postseason is very arbitrary. Um, that, I mean, sometimes, you know, if you go back through history, right, you can look, find all kinds of seasons where two teams went 12 and one, one team got to play for the national championship. The other didn't. And that's going to happen less often now, the bigger the field gets. But I always think of Mark Richt um, at Georgia, who I think had a tremendous tenure there, but is not uh, not necessarily comes up when people think talk about all-time great college football coaches. Um, and he had that, that 2002 team with David Pollock and David Green, and they went, I think, 13-1. and one, But they happened to that team happened to exist in the same season as Ohio State and Miami, who, when they played that legendary national championship game, like another season, that same exact record might have gotten them in the national championship game. So I get what he's saying from that extent, but at the same time, like, how, you know, especially now in the playoff era, how, how do we not give guys bonus points for winning the most important prize in the sport? Right. I mean, look, if Jimbo didn't win the national title at FSU, would he be in your top 10? No, he wouldn't. And... So if you're going, if, but I also don't think that that there was nothing. The thing is, there was nothing fluky. That wasn't a Gene Shizik gets Cam Newton for a year championship. That was, I mean, they were absolutely dominant, um, and and you know, earned earned every bit of that national championship. Yes, Jameis Winston obviously was a phenom, um, but guess what? Jimbo's produced a lot of other first round quarterbacks as well. So. Um, it, uh, you, there's a case to be made that we all have him overrated being in the top 10 for what he's accomplished more recently, but you know, he is and he's a national championship coach. Mac Brown's a national championship coach and I'm not necessarily applying it as strongly to him because that was in 2005. Okay. As always, send your questions and comments to the audible pod at gmail.com. We will see you next time.